Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Your hosts, Boo and Sean. Oh, day, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Few with me, Boo, and the legendary uh, Shawnee, Sean Sewell. Hello, mate. How's that accent going? You've developed that deep Northern Territory and drawl. Yeah, well, spending uh, three weeks in the last four weeks there, uh, definitely had a bit of that happening uh, and uh, definitely experiencing the wet season as well was a very uh, different experience. Um, so very humid up there at this point in time, this time of year. Oh, it's beautiful. We're very lucky, very spot over here in Australia, Northern Territory. It's our wild north, really is in, in the middle of, uh, middle of nowhere. So Sean's pulled off a miracle of travel uh, through various lockdowns of various states and we're very lucky to have him here today. I read a really interesting article this week. It was about bad bosses and how there's a new craze and people on TikTok are outing their bad bosses and they've, they're saying that we could see the largest resignation of poor leadership and management in the history of business thanks to these bad bosses being being named in shame for sexual harassment, bullying, uh, you name it. Uh, so it's again, maybe it's, a, it's social media working for us again. Today's guest is going to be someone that we can have a little conversation about this and about a whole bunch of other stuff that goes on between uh, our eardrums. We have um, psychologist and business strategist and all-round legend Leanne uh, Elish on the show uh, today. Hey, Leanne, thanks so much for uh, coming on the few with Sean and myself today. Really, really uh, stoked to have you with us. Hey, um, Boo and Sean, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Really excited. Welcome. Awesome. Let's get stuck in. So uh, when I did a little bit of research into uh, prior to this episode, Leanne, it was, it was good to have a look and sort of say, well, there's this element of that I look at when I work with, uh, with my clients and things like that is this psychology element of business, leadership, life, how we show up, all that sort of stuff. It seems that you've taken that to a whole new level, done quite a bit of extensive experience and background in different areas, you know, in medical uh, industry, technology, things like that, and also psychology. And and I'm really fascinated about it. I've, I've been st- sort of an avid studier of psychology and people and peak performance and all that for many years now. Tell us, how did you get into this kind of area and what what is it that drives that passion for you? Yeah, sure. It's, um, it is an absolutely fascinating area of science and of you know human biology well my background is medicine so I was previously an oncologist so having that experience with patients that's um, very emotional very much a journey for them that is life-threatening and their quality of life's not good. So right from the beginning and the get-go, my career, I started studying sort of human behavior. And of course, during my medical degree, we do psychology. A lot of work that I did was with pediatrics. So the little kitties with cancer, which I absolutely loved, but it in itself is dealing with emotions, behaviors, trust, and having to build those and even my own resilience, having to deliver some bad news and being able to, you know, in my own behavioural science attributes that I have and how I can deal with them. And over the years from being clinical, I went into industry and into the commercial world, into business, and basically took those frameworks and methodologies that I learned clinically into the business world. And I ended up studying behaviors, emotions, motivations, and neuroscience and behavioral science in business and understanding what drives people to make decisions, regardless of whether they're purchasing something, whether they need to make a decision for a team, whether they're uh, uh, in, a, in a leadership team, an executive team, and need to make you know quite vital and, and crucial business decisions. And the understanding behind it and the motivations and behaviors behind it, plus 
also looking at the breakdown of relationships within business and what determines sort of a successful way forward or successful outcome and an unsuccessful outcome. And with that, I am quite frankly on a, on a mission to understand and to educate others and to work with clients to gain better relationships within business. But it's not just understanding one another and having that authenticity, but it's a to-do business. So it will end up being transactional. You will be selling something. There will be a, a transfer of knowledge or a transfer of value, but it has to be done ethically and you need to understand the person that you're talking to. That's where the fascination is of how we communicate on different levels. I do a lot of work with conversational intelligence and that's just part of how we communicate in business. Yeah, wow. I mean, and I imagine that the that's the psychology that you led it to learn how to, to understand and reading people and that sort of stuff is not limited just to the patient. You've clearly got, you know, particularly if you've got sick children, you've got the parents, you've got siblings, you've got other people around that that you're managing um, expectations. As you said, I mean, I can't imagine how hard it is to deliver some of that news that you've had to deliver to people and then reflecting that back into your own psychology and able to, to handle situations. I mean, it must have created a, a very a very strong level of resilience within you as well. Yeah, and it, it is quite difficult, especially, I mean, it comes with practice and experience, but initially, you know, when you have, you know, your first little one or your first group of little ones, you know, when it's actually right there in front of you and you need to deliver that news or you need to then, you know, treat them with with radiation, so radiotherapy for 30 days, so they'll have a, you know, a six-week course of treatment, especially the little ones are anesthetized every single day because we can't have them moving because the precision of the radiation needs to be at, well, these days, sub-millimeter. Being able to convey something so technical and scientific in a way for a young person to understand, then to explain it to the adults, so the carers or the parents or grandparents, plus the support network, and also bringing in especially those that um, were in, we found in primary school, if they had a brain tumour, let's say, uh, unfortunately, you know, a lot of them might be on chemo or they would have a certain you know, radiation to the part of their head so they would lose their hair. And they, they did get teased because kids are kids and, and, and kids just go, oh, you look funny or you brush your hair or whatever. And so trying to encourage an entire classroom to come in and experience what their classmates going through for them to understand at a psychological level that actually what he's going through is, or he or she is quite tough, but it's super cool because it's this really big, massive machine that looks like a transformer because the linear accelerator is really big. And being able to provide an outlet for them, seeing that, and seeing the transformation of the support network around that patient is what then gives me the resilience and the motivation to then go, okay, I'm in a psychological safe place. I can put my patient and family in a psychological safe place and then we can move forward no matter what the outcome is going to be at the end. And it's interesting how the correlation between a medical professional and patient and a business professional and customer or client is actually quite close. It's not as, as the disparity is not as much as what people think. It's that same sort of relationship, trust and emotion that we use to build a relationship. But Leanne, isn't that, I've got a theory, which is, you know, in business, we make it about business for some reason. And we, we make decisions different in business and, and different when it's an organisation. But at the core of it, isn't decision-making and psychology and value and and all of these concepts just life? Don't we lose sight of the fact of the value we have in a relationship and the, and the value we need to create? We have to create these, these safe zones to optimise time, to, to do the simple things like look after our health and well-being as much as we need to look after our sales pipeline. Does, does psychology just isn't just behaviour and behaving as a good person and showing up and being consistent, isn't it just kind of all one and the same? Like, what's the difference? I, look, I love that. Honestly, you're right. And a lot of it is what we think is common sense. It doesn't come, unfortunately, it doesn't come naturally to people at all. 
Well, I work with some psychometric instrumentation like personality traits and disc profiling. I do a lot of work with business archetypes. So archetypes are the from Carl Jung, the Jungian archetypes that were developed. He was a, a Swiss psychologist that worked with Sigmund Freud. And being able to transfer these archetypes into business or into branding, into marketing, which is where you hear them a lot, but I've transferred them into business and I've been using them for a long, long time, where I always say we concentrate on the business first rather than the people first. A business doesn't run without people. A sale doesn't happen without a person. So without building that relationship and actually developing that skill to connect properly, the sale's not going to happen. Anyone can sell something once or twice. It will happen as a fluke. But can you do that for 10, 15, 20 years? Decision-making is based on two principles only, to be honest, emotion and logic. And logic is always, you know, I want something. Why do I want it? I need to justify why I've made that decision. And it's basically logic solves a problem. Emotion is how it makes us feel. We would never, ever make a decision, even if it was a, well, it it does happen, but we generally don't make decisions unless we feel it's the right decision and makes us feel good. Or there's going to be, even if it's a hard decision to make, that the outcome is going to be positive. And so, to be honest, and there was actually a, um, a Harvard at Harvard Business School study that was done saying that you know around about ninety to ninety two percent of decisions are made using emotion, and then the logic comes in later. So, just saying that means that when you're doing business, you deal with people. That's what comes first. And understanding how they want to be communicated to, what they want to hear, and everyone, you know, everyone's different. The way I'm having a conversation with you guys now will be a certain, certainly a different conversation I would have with a, another group of people. It depends on what resonates with them and how they want to be perceived, and also what their innate personality traits are. It's really interesting. I just read last week about emotion-led decision making and how it's all emotion, and then we trip into that to that logic logic circuit and I certainly remember that when I was you know, in the Air Force and in, in Afghanistan and my you know mild PTSD compared to most but learning that cognitive behavioral therapy technique and, and understanding how you can logic yourself out of everything like how do we help businesses though like how do we help people understand that everything is about about people and, and not about the features and benefits on your on your device yeah we just find that comfort zone in the tech and, and in the in the science don't we what are some of the tips People that have got that that self awareness around, you know, trying to have conversations and trying to connect people with the the human side of everything that we do. Have you got any techniques or experience that have? Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> um, absolutely, and you know, you're right. There is a human side to business, and what I what I've noticed too is with the pandemic and and lockdown that because we've been a lot more insular and remote that we have lost some of that innate skill that we have just to connect socially. I mean, we're animals, we're social beings. It's natural for us to want to talk and communicate with others, but in the way that we do it, we revert back to our default. And unfortunately, our default isn't always what the other person wants to hear. And that is a massive problem in business that we think everyone we're communicating to is like us. What is easy for us to understand, what we want to hear, how we want to hear it, how we want the message to come across is what everybody else wants. And that is just simply not the case. So with some of the tools that I use, DISC profiling being one of them, there's actually quadrants within DISC, dominance, influence, steadiness, and compliance. But within those quadrants, there's then four personality traits. So we end up with 16 personality traits around the sphere. And what we tend to do is look at the person that is operating the business and their staff, how the business wants to be portrayed in the industry as a industry expert, what customer segments they're dealing with. So what are the types of customers that they are selling to? The demographics, the geographics, the psychographics, and end up more of a deeper understanding of the person 
you were doing business with rather than the business you were doing business with. So business archetypes identify the natural expression and motivation of a business and the people within the business. So for instance, I'm I'm a sage. So a sage is wisdom, intelligence, teaching, loves learning, and there is a spiritual side to a sage as well. That's my primary archetype. My secondary archetype, which is what probably wouldn't surprise you, I mean, I know people aren't seeing me, but you can see me, is a creator. And because I have always said I'm unconventional in conventional medicine, that I'm not your typical clinician or not your typical business person, not your typical, even that the whole branding of, of our business is very different. But I then need to adapt my sageness and my creativeness to someone that would be a jester archetype or would be a caregiver archetype. But, Liam, why are you different? Where does that fit in? Why are you doing all this random stuff? You did medicine, you're an oncologist, you have a career mapped out for you. Like, where does that fit into the whole because because as I transitioned into the business side of medicine, I was in that for about 17 years, I noticed the, the limitations of people being able to communicate. And I am very much, and, and you can tell I'm very much a talker and very much a communicator and love networking and just love learning from people. I mean, I love teaching people. I love listening to what they have to say and what their areas of expertise are and how I can bring them into my network to make myself a better person and also what can I give them to make them a a better person as well. And I noticed that right from the beginning of stepping into business that there was this big hole of relationship selling that was non-existent. And right from the word go, I built international pathways and relationships to be able to bring in new technologies into Australia and New Zealand, to be able to lobby with the government, to be able to have these technologies and this ginormous, I guess, aura of information that we could get our hands on. It wasn't just somewhere else or it was international or some, you know, globally that we couldn't get our hands on. We actually had it on our doorstep and we were able to use it. And that was my mission right from the start. So again, you've got to remember, I'm my back. I mean, I wanted to be in medicine when I was five. And there's a story to that too, which is quite funny. But I just, I am a nice person, I guess, but it comes across a little bit like, oh, you know, she wants to help the world. Well, yeah, I do. I wouldn't have gone, gone into oncology in the first place, but it's not just about that. It's about bringing out the best in everyone and what skills everybody's got them some of them are just dormant what can we do to accelerate that or ignite those dormant behaviors that everybody has especially in business to then project a business even further so for me it's important to see this transformation sales acceleration but done ethically in the right way I've also learned along the way what not to do I've seen behaviors that have been appalling in corporate and they have been I've been a part of some toxic environments and and toxic cultures and as upsetting and devastating it is at the time, it does create a lot more resilience and also teaches you what not to do in business or in a a business environment. And that's really important as well. Just to to second that thought, um, and whilst I haven't worked specifically in corporates, I've worked in small to medium businesses, but one of the things that I, the most that I learned was what not to do more so than even what to do and watching people in different industries, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands, people basically ripping people off blind, selling properties without valuations, adding a percent to their, you know, home loan interest rate and all this sort of stuff. And ultimately these people ended up in jail, thankfully, but um, they were ripping people off blind and, and just doing things. I looked at it and went, no wonder I have this thing about sales and I don't ever want to be a salesperson. It makes me feel sick to the stomach. And a couple of years later, I ended up going, I'm, I cannot deal with this industry with the way people are doing it. I want to do it differently. And I literally went out on my own, start, put my own shackle out and went right into the mortgage broking space. And I ended up creating, I think I was, I was number six in Australia for volume in the first 18 months of my business, predominantly from referrals and repeat clients. And I didn't have one client that complained or had buyer's remorse. And I'd never done any sales training or anything. 
But what I realized later is people are like, how the hell are you doing it? I had a high success rate. I had awards in the industry. Not that I was chasing that. That just was part of it. And, and I just said, well, I go in there and I ask lots of questions and I listen. And they go, what do you mean? You go, well, I just listen to what they want. And then when I know what they want, then I say, well, I think this thing can give you that. And it comes to that, that statement of people buy from those they know, like, and trust. And so having that frame that always, how do I get them to know me? How do I get them to like me? How do I get them to trust me? And I think the only way to do that is to actually be trustworthy, likable, and know what the hell you're talking about. 100%. And what you've just explained, Sean, is relationship selling. So what people need to understand is that we sell every single day. The, the reason why sales becomes sleazy, so to speak, is because of the trickery and, as you were just saying, and the under-the-table shenanigans that goes on that gives the sales side of business or sales people a bad name. But sales doesn't have to be transactional. Just talking to someone and giving them your opinion or getting them to try and understand your point of view, that's selling. You are still, you're selling your knowledge, you're selling your value, you're selling information. And so I'm trying to explain to people that it's a relationship that you're building and that no like trust that you mentioned is exactly right. I also use another framework or the, the three pillars of customer engagement of emotion, trust, engage. So how does it make the customer feel? Yeah, and you absolutely hit the nail on the head with listening. Listening and hearing are two totally different things. And what happens in sales is because a lot of salespeople use brute force, so to speak, to get a sale where they're not physical but verbal, you know, because they have the pipeline that you said, boo, in the back of their mind going, I need to meet this target. I need to get my goals. I mean, finan- I know we all need financial metrics, but for a salesperson, and remember, I've been doing psychology of sales for over 20 years, financial metric is one of the most demotivating uh, metric that you can give a salesperson because they actually lose sight of what they're doing or the relationship or the help that they're trying to give. So when I, I, I teach this, I say, stop selling, start helping. If you are trying to help a person solve a problem, they'll need to buy something from you because you're the expert and have the product or the service. Well, don't waste your time. Move on. There's nothing there. Don't, don't invest in no opportunity. Right, exactly. And Leanne, you said to have someone buy from you, right? The thing is, what I think is the sleazy salesperson sells to people, but someone who's a relationship-based salesperson has people buy from them. Yeah, it's not a push, it's a, yeah, that that pull. And also take your time. I mean, I've, I've written a book about this and also I've created, which you're probably interested in, what's called the periodic table of sales. So the periodic table of sales is like the periodic table of chemical elements, except rather than being a chemical element, it's actually a business element. So the periodic table is exactly the same shape as the periodic table standard as we know it. There aren't 67, 68 elements as there are normally. It's 21 and they are all business elements. And it becomes part of an equation that breaks down the psychological, the neuroscience of a selling process and how you become a person that sells based on emotion, meaning, relationship, trust, authenticity, rather than the dollar. Can I just back the truck up a little bit here? And you mentioned something before. Uh, funny story about becoming a doctor. So when I was five, Santa bought me the game Operation. I don't know if you remember the game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so it's a, a person, like a board, well, it's sort of a 3D board game, and it's a, a person and he's got organs missing. So where where the organs are, there's... They, they still make it, by the way, and I, I got it for my kids for Christmas like a few years ago, and in the same way you know, cancel culture and everyone must win. It drives everything in the world. The bits you pull out of the body are tiny and the holes are huge. I mean, you can you can pull the bits out with a, a pair of cooking gloves. But I remember our version of operation, man, it was hard. Oh, it was. You're right. It was like precision surgery back in our day. It was seriously. And you had to have a steady hand and you had to have these tiny little like tweezers and there was barely any room for error at all. And as you either put the organ in the spot and it had to be the right spot, otherwise it wouldn't match the shape, 
if you were putting it in or removing it, so depending on if you were implanting or explanting <laughs> or resecting, I guess, if you touch the edge, it would buzz but make a really, really loud, loud sound, like very like invasive sound. And when I used to play it, everyone used to make a buzz on purpose. And they would laugh and, you know, just, you know, carry on and go, oh, you know, it didn't make it, didn't make it, you know. And I used to get upset and say, well, actually, do you just realise you've killed that patient? Do you just realise? <laughs> so this is a library rock. By the way, I was all dressed up in like my doctor's outfit and I had my stethoscope on. Definitely the life of the party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was dressed in with my stethoscope. We had everything going. I put the gloves. I'd probably done my seven-minute sterilizer wash as well. And I, um, yeah, and I used to get really, really upset that you adults aren't taking enough care to put the organ back in the spot where it should go without buzzing because if it was real, you would have killed the patient. And so from there it became this massive joke. And then funnily enough, and I and I, I have actually done quite a bit of surgery as well, and I will never, ever forget that game. <laughs> Lucky no one has a buzzer going off in the background. No, that would just do my head in. Hey, Sean, so here we are again, uh, mate, with our these core attributes of, of the few, that, that purpose-driven outcome, greatest of all time, you know. Like one thing I'm interested to know about purpose and lining up to, to deliver, do you feel like by the time you're in your 30s or you're kind of living your purpose that you've done it kind of longer than everyone else and you're ready for a change? Like something obviously changed for you, Leanne, in terms of, where your career went? Yeah, so funnily enough, I was in my 30s. I got headhunted by a medical devices company. The door opened for me to step out of what I was doing into a new opportunity, and I honestly had to weigh up because it was a very emotional, logical decision, emotional first, of what, what benefit would I get from doing this, but what else could I do and who else could I help? by making this decision. And the first thing that came to mind, despite everybody thinking I was nuts because I was very good at what I did and I loved what I did and then stepping out into, into the commercial world, I thought, well, rather than just helping a small number of patients per year, I can now help the entire country of patients and of, of, end up looking after Australasia. So it was all Australia and New Zealand. I actually then stepped into um, Asia Pacific. So I did a lot of work in APAC, a lot of work in Korea. And so I felt that there was potential at this stage. I didn't know, but I thought there's potential for me to build these, these networks and get all this really good technology, be able to implement it here and be able to affect many more people's lives than just the, the small amount, even though it was, you know, a couple of hundred, but it was a small amount each year. So that was one driver for me that my impact on very, very sick, unwell people, potential life-threatening, as we know, cancer is, I could have a much more of an impact on their lives and the industry of oncology and cancer care and healthcare. And that's exactly what we did. And we were very successful at doing what we were doing. We put things in place, frameworks and you know, methodologies in place, but we, it was all around and all stemmed from relationship selling. So we had to build a relationship with people in the government directors in the hospital, the, in the private centres, to get them to trust us that what we were doing was in their best interest and it was going to make them feel good. So a lot of the sales cycles were quite long because you have to put the time in, especially when it's something new, in the beginning to you know, develop that relationship and be transparent. And then over time they get to know you and, and you know, some of them bought from us Continually, I mean, I've actually made really good friends with a lot of my former customers that I still speak to and and work with today. Yeah, it's it's very very sounds very familiar, Leanne. Too. I mean, my journey's similar. I started off, you know, helping a few people in the in the, in the business space one on one and that sort of stuff, and and ended up and five years ago now moving to a joint community like a community model with some you know still connecting with with my members in my inner circle group. And I'd say three quarters of those people are now friends of mine. These are people that are obviously paying for a service and paying for support and paying for all that. But I literally, when I flew to the Northern Territory, I was up there, I said, hey, guys, I'm going to be up there for dinner. 20 of them showed up, you know, just to have dinner. You know, this we weren't talking shop. I wasn't working. I was just happened to be flying through to go to another place to do a keynote. 
they were all there. Some couple of them invited me to their house to have dinner on another night, and that's the thing. When it, to me, the 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 satisfaction of relationship selling is is incredibly powerful. And when I moved my one on one clients across, I started with six members in my group. I've got over a hundred members now. Every single one of them has come from a referral from someone in my group or someone I've worked with before. So if I didn't have the relationship with those people, I wouldn't have eighty something you know businesses and one hundred and twenty five members or something in my group if I didn't build relationships with people. So for me, it's been very, very easy to develop and grow a business because people are like, oh, you should talk to Sean because I've got a relationship with them and they know that I'm not full of crap. And to me, again, what I'm hearing, I think is another theme that we see with the few a lot is how you're saying you want to make a bigger impact and, and change, you know, improve more people's lives. How important is the concept of legacy to you in what you do? Oh, extremely and it's not anything to do with I want to be known as a great person or, you know, this person that's you know, achieved all these things and, you know, I mean, I have a lot of credentials. You probably would have read it. That's not what it's about. It's about what impact have I had and how things have changed for the better for whether it's businesses, for people, people within businesses, patients, before that in itself, the transformation is what the legacy is, that I or whoever has been able to devise a, a framework or a method or a technology or a service or a product that affects someone else in a positive way that then rolls on and on and on and on. And, and other people contribute as well and improve it, but it's, you know, your, your baby, your, it's what you started with. And people just, you know, you and your referrals wanting to join your group, seeing you as a thought leader, going, I want to learn more from Leanne. I want to learn more from Sean. I want to learn more from Boo. That is what the legacy is. And the other thing too is when it comes to leadership, Legacy is also for those that are good leaders but also help others become good leaders. And for me, that's the epitome of leadership. It's not being bossy. It's not being at the top. It's not being at the you know, top of the triangle and the, the hierarchical status. It is having those skills to develop someone else to be an exceptional leader. And that in itself leaves a legacy. And do you think bad leaders are being exposed a bit more now? Like just not not just what I said earlier, but I, you know, with so much technology, so much information available, leaders used to be able to lead because they could hoard information, right? And information was power. Do you think today leadership is becoming, well, if you look at the global platform, I have an opinion, but do you think leadership is becoming a defining issue for society? Yeah, it is. And the and the problem with a lot of leadership, and this is where we get political at all, but this, I do talk about political leadership from time to time, and this is one issue is that a lot of leadership people see as personal gain. You know, I'm the leader. I'm at the top. What is in it for me? And unfortunately, and it's the job of, you know, political leadership, it's, it's their job to get as many votes as possible to be voted in. But, again, you're leading a party but it's personal gain. And people need to realise that you don't become a leader on your own. You don't remain a leader on your own. You need the support, the network, the group around you. There's one attribute I, I tell my clients when I'm doing leadership coaching is you need to be a follower. Would you follow yourself? Would you look up to yourself? Would you go, geez, boo, you're a great leader and I, you know, you're a role model or an icon. I want to do what you do. I want to learn from you. I want to, you know, experience what you're doing and, and ask you questions and, you know, develop my skills based on what you know. Would you do that to yourself? Would you follow you? And if you wouldn't, you've got a problem. So that's one thing I say. You need to be the best of you in a way that is you know, collegial, so then others will follow and you can impact their lives. But you're right. The, and I find the word leadership's being used a lot as well because we, obviously we're in this era of leadership being so important. But the expression of leadership or the motivation behind leadership, I think, is sometimes incorrect. I think you're right, Leanne, and, and people think leadership is, is a, it's a hat you put on in the context of your job or in your business as the boss or whatever it is, you know, I need to turn up as this leader and that might be dictatorial, blunt, aggressive, whatever it is, whatever they've learnt 
there's a, there's a process that I run through with with my clients. Actually, it was part of the keynotes I did as, as well that I went through with people. It's about getting people to define what leadership actually means to them. So who is it they actually aspire to be as a leader rather than just taking what other people say as this is how a leader should show up. It's like, well, now how do I want to show up as a leader? What resonates with me? And it took me quite a few years to figure it out. I think it's about six or seven years ago now I figured it out. And my definition of leadership is that is I am humble, authentic, and vulnerable. That's how I want to show up as a leader. You're a great leader, mate. I think that those, those are such admirable traits. Was, but it was aspirational, Boo. At one point it was aspirational. I wasn't that. I was like, who do I know that inspires me? You said, you know, look at yourself. Would you follow yourself? Well, what I did is this process is about look at other people that you go, wow, I really love Boo's tenacity to get stuff done. I really love Leanne's creativity. I really love Elon Musk's just ballsiness, you know, guts to just put it all on the line. You know, what are these traits that other people have that you resonate with and that you aspire to be that? And, and ultimately I'd say, look, you know, if you could be standing at your own funeral in 30, 40, 50 years time, whatever it is, and watch someone giving a eulogy about you, what do you want them to say? Because that defines who you have been, not what you were doing, who you were being. And I think that's vastly more important. Yeah, that's a hundred percent. So, Leanne, do you find certain personalities and leadership types in certain industries? Again, I've got an opinion yeah. on this, but I'd be interested to find out whether yeah. you, you see it as well. Absolutely. And there are people that are born leaders. Matt, that, that cliche is actually true, that have that emotive, they're full of empathy. And every leader needs to have some form of empathy. You can't lead without empathy. In fact, you can't do business without empathy, to be honest. But there are some personalities that are and that's more in the sort of that dominance sort of quadrant where they're quite assertive quite blunt they have you know very level one conversations that don't end up going into level two level three where they start sort of delving and asking questions or what they you know very very short they're the people that want the one page rather than the manual and they struggle quite a bit with leadership because it's not in their nature to be patient. It's not in their nature to listen. They want decisions yesterday and it's difficult for them. But now these can be learned skills and there are a lot of deep personalities out there that are leaders, but it's not natural for them. Someone who's an I, so an I, which is influence, is very much a natural leader. The one thing, though, with eyes is they are very social and they can be a little bit too transparent and too open. But that is still good to have rather than than the opposite. But there are, yes, to answer your question, yes, there are certain personality traits that would naturally exhibit leadership qualities and it would be easier for them to go on in the leadership world than others that are different personality traits. And Leanne, I'll, I'll say it, that I definitely didn't start out as the whole natural born leader thing. I mean, I'm a DS on the e-disc thing. So I remember 20 so, so years ago, I think you were talking about me, the person that wanted the one pager, the person that was very dominant, the person that was dictatorial, the person that didn't give two hoots about how someone felt about what you said. But I also realized that I was taught that by other people. But it was as I started to shift from being you know, stuck in the ego to more of a heart-centered focus, I started to realize that this is not actually working. It's not working for me. It's not working for other people. And I gradually moved into that more empathetic frame. And, and I definitely have, am far more dominant now in the, not in the D, but I would say in the S side of my personality and how I show up. And, and that's been something that has been a learnt skill. It wasn't something I started with naturally, definitely not. No, that's good. And, and Which means that obviously other people can learn it too, if I can, if I'm coming from that far back. You've got to be open to learning as well. So you've got to be willing to, as you said, vulnerability. I love that. And I love that you said that. Vulnerability, you know your shortcomings. You are willing to learn. You're willing to open yourself up and be told that that's not right or you can do that better. And you don't take it to heart. You go, okay, well, how do I do it better? You know, show me, tell me what do I need to do and I'll practice, I'll practice, I'll practice. That vulnerability is what has created or given you that skill of now transforming from that assertive blunt D into a leader. Definitely taking a lot of work, but uh, worthwhile because the the relationships I've got, like my team, I've had team now for over 15 years in my business. 
um, I still ask them every now and then, so why are you still here? And they go, that's because you don't live in the, and you're never here and never in the office. Is that a joke or is that for real? But anyway, but uh, the, the point is that I, I've seen that and they can, they'll give me feedback. They'll be blunt as if they need to, to let me know that I'm doing something that's not okay. I'm like, oh shit. Okay. Sorry. Yep. It's okay, a nice way to live too. It is. Like it's, it's good when you're a leader, like it makes decision-making so much easier that, you know, when you go for these obscure management techniques where you don't want to know anything and just get on with it and don't bring me problems. It's like, it's just a house of cards, you know, like leadership is a, yeah, I reckon it's, the world of pain. I was reading somewhere it's like a two hundred twenty billion dollar industry, and the return on investment we're getting in leadership development right now it ain't good. <laughs> it ain't good. But also, leaders can't be afraid of failure, and you know, failure is important in anyone's growth. Failing is life. Like it is, it is very hard to succeed. Every you write a paragraph for a for a, a, a particular paper, you the first time you write, it's going to be a failure. Well, you spoke about kids, right, and having that journey of bringing, you know, primary school kids in and that, and giving them access to the world that a sick child is to give context. And and I see through the eyes of my kids, and and when they do work, they just do it once and they do it badly, and it's like, well, that's just, you know, that, that's just, I'm just not good at it. And it's like, ah, this ingrained humanness to just not understand that everything can be improved or learned or practiced, and and it's that commitment and, and Sean's favorite, yeah, consistency. Just showing up. That's key. And I, and I find consulting in business, and Leanne, you might see this as well, just, just the scattered thinking that goes on, just the, the shiny new thing. And-, and very much so. And 90% of businesses I find are that, you know, want the latest and greatest and the best, but don't actually look at the depth behind it or the reason behind it or resources behind it. And if you don't understand what's behind it, that's just a novelty and that's going to wear off or you're not going to be able to, you know, use it optimally and then you go on to something else. And that's sort of the problem that we live in now. Everything's disposable and at our fingertips and we want to be good now. We don't want to wait. We're not patient anymore. And that pushing through the failure, you know, and understanding where did I go wrong? Where can I do this better? What do I need to learn that we all went through to make a who we are now that is i feel is not being encouraged with the kids these days and even you know i I can see it in young adults as well and even going into business i mean there's some older adults that have sort of stepped back into that world and i think there's just an expectation that you do it once you do it well or you're out that's not life it doesn't work for that plus we don't become the best people that we can possibly be and work at our absolute optimum without making boo-boos along the way. The boo-boos are really important. But we break things big. That's what happens. We hide the boo-boos and then things break big. We, we get divorced. Companies collapse. People lose their jobs. We have this huge traumatic outcome because we never invest the time and effort to unpack the small things that lead up to it. Nothing big that happens in life happens in isolation. Well, unless you get hit by lightning, fair call, but you know, you probably shouldn't have been outside. So that's on you. You know, there's there's always a cause to everything. And and I think what's such a powerful technique to learn as a human is is to unpack those little tiny things and just emotionally divest yourself. It's just a human thing. I heard it explained really well the other day. It's not a failure, it's just an experiment or an attempt. And they're they're okay. Every time that the attempt didn't go the way you wanted to, well, that's where you learn, right? Boo, boo, to add to that, I think what people often believe though is that it's not that that failed, it's that I failed. Yeah. And that's the problem. They're creating and associating with their identity that I failed, I am a, which means I am a failure versus hmm, that thing we tried didn't work. It was a failure. doesn't make me a failure. So I think, and as you said, uh, Leanne, I'm seeing that in the in the you know the younger people in in business and and team members and stuff coming through, that that it is they've got less resilience and less willingness to fail. And there's that I can't remember who said it, but it was you know fail fast, fail forward, because the quicker you fail, quicker you learn. Well, nothing's gone wrong for the last twenty years. There's twenty five years of economic growth, mate, in this country. You know, there's nothing to stress about. There, there hasn't been. Our walls don't get blown in. No one dies. Everything's like we, Australia is this little microcosm. And it, Leanne, is there truth to this theory that the reason there's so depress- much depression and anxiety is because there's really nothing to worry about anymore? So we just worry about everything? Possibly, but t- no, Jen. <laughs> um, like we just worry about nothing. 
what tends to happen is the impact because what you're you're saying that there isn't any major devastation that when something small happens it's embellished or it's exaggerated where someone else will go oh okay that's we'll deal with that you know that's okay so oh my gosh how are we gonna deal with it where it should be just a little thing if it's all relative and because we haven't got a control of something going devastatingly wrong anything that's small is now devastating so in a way what you're saying is right but it's just the way that we perceive it and we measure it ourselves. Now, also other people's resilience and tolerances are very different to our own. So what also happens, and this is where your own archetype comes in, is subconsciously, and they call this the collective unconscious, there are certain aspects of life that happen that trigger emotions and memories. Now, something that might trigger you, boo, I might just go, oh, okay, well, I'll have to deal with it in this way, where for you it might be a big deal and vice versa. You know, it might be something they go, you know, it's okay, we can deal with this. And I'm going, you don't understand, I don't know how we're going to fix this. And you see this in relationships and you see these in even in friendships, that the, the two perceptions of the problem, and it depends on our own internal and our innate emotions and feelings that represent the problem in the first place. Expectation management. It's self-regulation too. But also you said it's someone's perception. That's right. They don't have a, a, something to measure it against. And I think, as you're saying, but when we're exposed to more impactful things, you know, something that happens in our lives, something traumatic or whatever, we kind of get that perspective for a period of time. And it's almost like, and sometimes it stays and sometimes it kind of diminishes and we go back to Yeah, it's a shock and we forget everything. about it again. <laughs> we yeah. normalize. We find the new norm. I mean, for instance, I mean, I couldn't even, uh, gosh, now, now I'm opening right up. I mean, for me, I mean, I've, my hair, I've got sort of short hair and it's sort of blonde at the top with star, curls and things. Oh, you're rocking it. It's, it's great. <laughs> A little bit like your hair, Brew, but And for me... That's my identity and people know me and I wear a lot of pearls or bows or some kind of little piece in my hair and I've been known for that for 20 years. It's got to a point now that's become my, my, part of my archetype. I'm doing keynote speaking. I need to have something in my hair and quite often it, it will be what's Leanne going to have in her hair or what it's just become this thing. Now, for me, my hair is important. Obviously, we were in lockdown in here in New South Wales for nearly six months. We couldn't go to the hairdressers. Now, normally, if that was the case two years ago, I would have been destroyed. What do you mean I can't go to the hairdressers? It's been four weeks. I've got to get my hair done. I've got to get it dyed. I've got to get it cut. It's going to look terrible. The bows aren't going to sit right. It's not going to frame my face properly. It's not going to look like me. And I, you know, a hundred million things I could think of. For six months, I didn't go to the hairdressers. Obviously, I've been now. But because we were dealing with such an impactful problem of the a pandemic and, you know, people being affected, positive cases, people dying, it took the hairdressers, <laughs> that problem, it put it into perspective, went, well, actually... Yeah, it's not ideal and we'll wait six months, but we've got a bigger problem here. So I think I'll just, you know, deal with my hair later. Um, it's not that big a problem considering what we're dealing with. But it yeah, takes almost true. a catastrophe for us to then realise that the things that are important to us that technically we can do without aren't a problem. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's perspective again, it's perspective. So given uh, you've seen a lot of stuff, you've been through a lot of things, you, you've you learned a lot uh, in a different number of different industries and uh, I'm sure spent plenty of time uh, psychoanalyzing people uh, as, you, as you're working with them or just seeing them in life. What's a key lesson or takeaway that you've picked up in this journey and if you were to, that you would take back and deliver to a younger version of yourself? Wow, yeah, yeah. Um- a couple of things actually. The first thing is don't be afraid of failure. That is certainly one. That's also why I brought it up before. And that was something when I was younger, being a perfectionist, being extremely competitive. It was, I need to be the best at everything. I need to be on the podium. I need to be doing this. I need to be cast. I used to do a lot of dancing. I used to be cast as the, the principal. And if I don't, I failed. No, I haven't. It's just my perception of failure. So for me, if I felt, knew that there was going to be 
something else come afterwards that it wasn't going to be as detrimental as I felt it was going to be. That would be something that I would say to my younger self. It's okay that you haven't come first this time. Someone else has. They've deserved it over you. Your time will come another time. And the other thing is to acknowledge the opportunities that we are presented with. Quite often these things are smack bang in front of us and we don't see the doors open. We, we see it ajar and we don't take any notice. But what we need to do, and, and, and I don't like the cliche, I don't like cliches at all, to be honest, but the cliche, you know, stop and smell the roses. What we need to do is just keep our, our mind wide open is what I actually call it, mind wide open or think outside the box like the, the business. And just for a minute, look in your periphery. Stop just being blinkered. Look at what's around you. And if there are some doors that are a little bit ajar, push them open. Step through because you just don't know what is there for you on the other side. Yeah, there's always risk and it can be a little bit daunting. But if you don't give it a go and you don't see what is there that could push you to your full potential, you will never know. So that's another thing that I would have told my younger self. Maybe they should give you your call. If they think a door is ajar, yeah, there's obviously some perception issues right there. So. Yeah, yeah, they can call me and I'll just go boof and, <laughs> and push them through and go, go on, go on. A lot of people need a safety net and that's, yeah, and I can provide that safety net, but you know what, just go for it. But it's it's not that that simple. But, yeah, just be a bit more open to things that are out there, things, and, you know, like you were saying, you know, the great resignation as they're calling it, that, and that is happening. That is happening. It's for a you know, multitude of reasons. It is because of poor leadership. It's also because of the way the people are behaving and communicating at, at the executive level under stress. And people have just said, no, I've, I've had enough. I can't take it anymore. This is too much. And there is this, what they call the great um, resignation. All these people are going to need opportunities. Other people need to step into opportunities. Just be mindful of what's around you. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. Absolutely. Now, really, really appreciate your time today, Leanne, and because some good reminders there about, uh, you know, relational selling or relationship selling. You know, it's don't sell to somebody, build a relationship and they'll buy from you. It makes it easier, better quality clients, you know, less bull crap and, and actually building some real relationships. And the other thing is, you know, really focus on that, that leadership piece, like how are you showing up and who are you showing up as? So um, now got a lot out of the, the uh, conversation today and I'm sure our listeners will also. So a massive thank you, Leanne, for coming on the, today. Thanks so much, Leanne. No, you're welcome. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. And if you're looking for Leanne, it's leanneelichconsulting.com and that is E-L-I-C-H. It'll be in the show notes as well. Sean, Leanne, thanks so much. As always, a, a wonderful conversation. That's a wrap. This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of The Few. We'll see you next week.